everyone. In this episode of History Unloaded with Daddy and Ashley, we are going to continue our topic of new gun scholarship. There's been so much, like, there's been, like, really good scholarship that's been coming out, and it's really groundbreaking. And we talked with Nathan in the last episode about how, you know, they debunked a lot of, he debunked a lot of Browning history. And there's some new stuff that's being researched that I think is pretty revolutionary, and it's been by a guy named David Yamane, who is a professor, I believe, at Wake Forest, and he's actually a sociologist. And he's been working on a concept called gun gun culture 2.0 for a pretty long time and he's working on a big long book but instead of coming out with a big long book or waiting until he comes out with a big long book he actually came out with like a mini book that took into account all of the stuff that he's been working on that ultimately was going to be have to have to be left out and so he's got a book that we're going to talk about in a little bit called concealed carry revolution expanding the right to bear arms in america but before we bring him on let's talk a little bit about how freaking hard it has been to find histories on carry in and of itself and also self-defense. Yeah, like two things. One's a, once again, my two things is one is a tangent and one is a topic. We sound a lot like NPR right now. We're bringing on a professor of sociology from Wake Forest. Yeah. Like, that in, that intro was very NPR, which Thank I guess you. we're part of. What's wrong with NPR? Your producer is an NPR reporter. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> that was literally so bad, Danny. <laughs> it was fine until you said it was bad. Um, so Number I, two. I didn't put my NPR voice on, though. I do have an NPR voice, and it could have been way better. We'll listen for that later. Okay. But you're right. It is really really difficult to get it like a good idea because everything that's out there at least is this what it's it, really hard to have a good idea <laughs> it's really hard to have a good idea to get at a good idea of what carrie was like historically um because it seems like everything that is out there is written trying to prove a political point not a historic one that's actually super accurate so it's either like People who love guns trying to prove that everybody was carrying or people that hate guns trying to prove that carry was regulated, which in some places it was, but that it was also super problematic. And there's like vastly different interpretations of the same data points. Like, so a good example is what is the violent crime rate in the West? Was the West as violent as it is portrayed? And so somebody will look at, say, Dodge City and say there was a murder there, you know, once, you know, there was a murder there. It didn't actually, there weren't that many homicides. Like there were a couple of years between homicides. It's not that frequent, like the 1870s, 1880s, whatever. And they'll say, see, it's not nearly as violent as it's portrayed. But then somebody else will come along and say, well, yeah, that's a relatively low number. But if you look at in terms of population, like that's a, you know, a murder rate that's like triple or quadruple in percentage terms or like per capita terms or some, you know, and there's all these manipulations of the statistics. And by the end of it, you're just like, I have no idea if people, you know, and then some places are like, you could carry any gun. Some places like you couldn't carry a gun at all in town. And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Well, and it's like, you can't, it would be interesting if you could go back in time and actually see if people then thought it was dangerous or not. Right. Like it would be really, there's, there's multiple points of history where I think if we could have like our, webcam like streaming version you know how some place places do um you know like a zoo will put a 24-hour camera on a panda or whatever 
if we could do that for like an old west town, the things we would see, I think, would just mess everything up. Well, and you also have to consider a lot of like towns are initially in the west were like predominantly populated by men. Not saying anything about violence in men, but when you think about like those towns, they were like at the end of a stagecoach row or you know a mining town, which wasn't like really a town it was like a bunch of dudes like like a work camp yeah like a slightly overgrown work camp and and that you know changed and expanded obviously over the years but that's like a way different idea of a place than than what when we think we say town we think of like grocery stores and shops and yeah um you know and as an aside you know it was prostitutes that actually civilized the west but that's fine Good aside, good aside. It's a good aside, actually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so you get this really confusing picture, and it's really detached from what the reality was probably like. And there's a lot of nuance that we don't know because I'm sure in those towns it said, all right, you know, Tombstone's a famous example, is at, at various points in its history, there were essentially total bans on carrying a firearm. And, but I'm sure in like an Old West mindset, if you, knew somebody like you could carry if you like I'm sure the good old boy system was much more prevalent so like reading just the laws themselves doesn't provide the whole picture because we don't get the nuance there but then how do you get to that and then um, like I said it all gets really colored by whatever lens you applied to it before you look at the data and I think it's partially because a lot of the like it really like we talked about how a lot of stuff isn't studied academically and so the people who have been drawn to it are people that are interested in the politics of violence in american history so you know there just haven't been people really until like david like david you know really came in with no opinion he wasn't from gun culture he wasn't anything you know and so like you just haven't gotten people that are just kind of like i really want to know about this but i don't you know want to make it compare it to today and so i don't know it's just really hard to really understand who was carrying when they were carrying um and how because you know like you've got like oh was everybody open carrying and then you know all of a sudden this law went into place so now everyone was ca- like concealed carrying you know what like i just i'm like i don't even know those answers yeah we can speculate but it's hard also can- to find you know, in the records being like, oh, everybody open carried in this town because it wasn't, you know, if it's not something in that time period of note. Right. Yeah. Then it doesn't get noted. Like there could have, everybody could have been walking down the street with a gun and that could have just been normal. And people don't write down what we want them to write down. People don't write down normal. Yeah. They don't write down normal. And so in, you know, we see it in like we see it in the Old West. We see it in, say, letters like back home from the front lines in a conflict. Like, we want them to have written down the serial number that they were issued in the trenches, but they didn't do that. We want them to write down they saw somebody walking down the street with a Colt peacemaker, but they don't write that down either. He was just walking yeah. down the street. Yeah. If they write down that part. So that, you know, becomes incredibly difficult. And, you know, I think David obviously has an opinion about how this all evolved, but also the other side of that. We were actually talking about this in lunch, which is self-defense uses of firearms. That was actually the most difficult to track down when we were building the new museum because when somebody stops something from happening. How does that get recorded? Yeah, it, you know, it's you know, it's not necessarily news because nothing 
happened Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And when somebody uses a firearm for self-defense and it's successful, again, like an individual, like, you know, that's not considered news. If that person had been attacked and killed or whatever, um, that all of a sudden that is news. Um, And so it was really difficult for us to find comprehensive examples. Like we found anecdotal examples of self-defense uses throughout history. Um, But it was really hard to track this entirety of when people were using firearms to defend themselves, when was it important. You can track the narrative of when we start to get the culture that we have today and the concealed carry push, you know, that have ha- that's happened in the 20th century, uh, basically through organizations and, and perception, not necessarily that it hadn't been happening before. But you can track those things. But it's really hard to track when something gets used positively because it's not news. I know I said that like five times, but it's not. And it just becomes really hard for you to historicize it. <laughs> historicize? That sounds like a me-ism. That, that's an actual, I mean, like it's an academic term. Gonna... His, historicize. Yeah, historicize, problematize. We like to attize the things. Attize. Attize the ties. <laughs> and you hate, what's the word you hate? Juxtaposition. Juxtaposition, which is a real word. Juxtaposize. Juxtaposize. That, gonna, I like that one. That I think I'm going to juxtaposize, yeah. Go, okay, so tangent. I have a tangent? No, that was a tangent. Oh. So, yeah. I thought you were just like keying me up like, Danny, tangent time. I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> no, um, I mean, like you were actually, Dan- Danny was the most valuable on the self-defense timeline because you knew of some weird things that happened. Like what was the bank robbery where like the guy was like, boys, get your guns. And like oh, the yeah, town held off this like bank robber. There's a couple of those because there's. Uh, a couple different gangs meet their fate that way. So people must have had, there was some carry for defensive purposes in the West because there would be like a bank robbery and some towns member would catch wind of it and just be like, get your guns. They're not leaving with our money because at that time it's not like insured money or anything. It's yeah. their money in their bank. And um, I just did, we just had a cool discovery in the Winchester ledgers. For example, Jesse, who's the museum record specialist that deals with all the Winchester and other firearms manufacturer records, and if you have one of those and call the records office, you get Jesse and her staff, and they look up guns and give you info on it. She got a request on a Winchester Model 1886, and it turned out to be part of a three-gun order, and they all were from they were all inscribed from uh, an individual to three separate individuals. So like one person giving out three guns to three people. And we started like she started looking into like she's like, this is kind of a weird entry, so I want to find out who these people were. She digs some does some digging and finds references to these names at a bank robbery that happened in Colorado and um, I think Meeker, Colorado. And there's like a whole story. So the bank robbers come into town. They go into the bank, tell everybody to shut up. We're robbing the bank. Don't make any noise. Like, don't let anybody know what's going on. Somebody sort of outside or something like that. Somebody sees what's going on or somebody manages to like sneak out. I forget the exact details. But essentially warns the town people, like the townspeople nearby. And there happens to be a game warden who kind of like organizes the resistance effort against these bank robbers. Because again, this is the 1800s. This is their money in that bank. Like they're not letting it leave town because they'll never get it back. So they all prep an ambush near the 
the horses because they see that there's some horses tied up behind the bank or to the on like a side alley. So they all like sight the door on that alley. The robbers like file everybody out to try and use them as like human shields so they won't get shot at. Um, people just break for cover and run, leaving the robbers exposed. And then the townspeople um, essentially shoot them all down as they try and ride away. I think one guy makes it onto his horse of like the three robbers, and but he's mortally wounded and then dies. And it's this, it's this sort of, it's almost like a movie line story where the townspeople rise up and defend, you know, their own stuff against these bank robbers. But these, th- like the, the guy that sort of organized the town, he got one of the rifles and like two other guys, I think that might've got wounded, got one of the rifles. Um, and it's just like this really interesting Western story of, okay, there's something here. Like these people got their guns from somewhere. So how prevalent was firearms ownership in the West? How prevalent was defensive use of firearms in the West? And I think that would qualify. Um, and the, so there's some really interesting incidents like that, but it's hard for it to paint a whole broad picture. Yeah. I mean, it's as much as we also hate on statistics, <laughs> um, you know, it's like you need a little bit of statistic because everything's anecdotal. Right. Um and so, yeah, it just was really difficult for us to to gather everything, and they almost seem like larger than life stories every <laughs> every time you right. They tell it's like them. that seems like that's scripted. Yeah, it does seem scripted. Like the I don't remember uh, Durant Earl Durant that was you know ultimately killed by that Powell High School student or oh, was yeah. shot by the Powell High yeah. School student. I don't know if he was killed by the Powell High School, Powell, Powell Wyoming being right down the street from where we are. Um, you know, it's, it's just it's fascinating the way the stories come up and then like the fact that you can corroborate them even though they seem like there's no way yeah. you know, that they could be historically accurate. So I mean, I really appreciate the work that David is doing because mm-hmm. I mean it's. First off, Gun Culture 2.0 is fascinating, and David, you know, in and of himself, is a fascinating person because he's infused himself into this culture, even though he wasn't a part of this culture initially. And he has taken like every single like self defense course I think you could possibly take with everyone in the community. Um, but then being able to track, you know, we said how hard it was. This is actually kind of funny. We talk about how hard it was to find this history, and like this this book is literally. <laughs> Littered with history that we couldn't find, right? <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing for us. So, uh, in our defense, I don't know what our defense. Our is. defense had, was we had a shorter timeline. I don't know. In our defense, we forgot to call David. Isn't in our it? defense, we forgot to call. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. One. We'll go with that. Yeah. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. You know, and we've talked about having you on the show a lot of times. So, I'm a little sad that it took five seasons to get you on the show because you've been doing your work for a really long time. But if you could, for our listeners, although I'm pretty sure we've also talked about you a lot, Madeline, you, you listen to the podcast, so you'd know. Um, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do before we get into your book? Sure. Uh, I'm David Yamani. I'm a sociology professor at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Uh, been a sociologist for a long time, but uh, for the, about the past 10 years, I've been studying contemporary American gun culture. And I also teach a course called The Sociology of Guns, which is fairly uh, unique among courses offered in sociology. 
And you have, the one thing that I find interesting about you is that I guess it's a sociology thing, although I know very little about sociology, but you basically like thrust yourself into every self-defense gun course possible. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like, what are your experiences with that? Cause you're not like, you're not from a gun world. You weren't a gun person before you got into this. And so I have not taken any of those courses. So I'm really curious about what you've been doing with that, how you're receiving it. And then I don't know, maybe like your favorite, you don't have to say that, but if you want to, you can. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area in a blue bubble that safely insulated me from guns for most of my life. And then of course, becoming a sociologist didn't bring me any closer to the social worlds of people who are likely to own guns until I moved to North Carolina. And I had a fortuitous combination of um, some personal interest in guns aligning with needing to start a new research project. So when I began, I thought I was going to do a fairly narrow study of uh, concealed carry. Uh, and this is some of the origin of the, the book that you mentioned. Uh, but part of getting into this idea of concealed carry was seeing it as part of a broader cultural movement within sociology that I call Gun Culture 2.0, stolen from Michael Bain with his permission. Uh, and I realized fairly early on that a big part of this defensive gun culture was the training that took place, uh, you know, beginning at gun site in the, in the 1970s, along with some other traveling trainers. And the first course that I took was fairly early on, around 2012, was Masada Ayub's MAG-40 course, uh, which, you know, I think is fairly well known within uh, the self-defense training community. And from there, you know, I realized that there were just so many other people who were doing similar or variants of, of what Moss was doing. And that, again, it was very central to this development of a new self-defense oriented gun culture. So I've been uh, including courses that I've just observed or courses that I've actually participated in, uh, getting near about 800 hours of courses uh, so far and you know, I've been at it long enough, about 10 years now, that you actually start to see not just what people are doing, but where the boundaries of self-defense gun training are being pushed. Uh, so, you know, that that's where that aspect of my work fits into the, the bigger picture. Yeah. I like the idea that a sociologist professor probably outranks both of us and virtually all of our listeners in hours of self-defense firearms training. <laughs> Well, you know, it was very interesting because when I first began trying to observe these courses, you know, their people were rightfully suspicious of having a sociologist nosing around because sociologists have never treated guns uh, respectfully, you know, for the, in, for the most part, always treating them as in connection with crime and deviant behavior and, and injury. And so, you know, in the beginning, I really had to establish my uh, credentials as someone who was taking what was going on in these classes seriously. And then over time, as I was you know, able to establish myself in that way, that became easier and easier. And now I feel fortunate that if there's a class that I wanna observe, you know, that, that people generally welcome me to do that. And I, I try to repay that uh, respect by, by telling the, the true story of American gun culture. And this is the, 
the project that I'm trying to see through with uh, this, the book that just came out as kind of an appetizer and a broader book or two on gun culture will be the main course. Well, and uh, word on the street is that everybody loves you. So I hear about <laughs> you all the time from, <laughs> from a lot of those people. So you've done a good job uh, in uh, accurately representing the community. And I just, as you were talking, remembered that you're actually, you have a, a chapter in a bigger book um, that was, okay, I reviewed it for the Journal of Technology and Culture. And I don't know if you remember, but like you were the only mm -hmm. part of the book I liked <laughs> because <laughs> it was that very that. like negative um, perspective on firearms, which obviously people are welcome to have. But that book, if I remember correctly, you know, a lot of those articles really just had zero sense of actual gun culture, gun history and technology. But I, I remember that. And I remember being impressed with you. And I'm pretty sure I said that in the review because that my review is pretty brutal of the book in general. Yeah. yeah. And I, I agree that, it, you know, we want to, as scholars, cover everything, you know, not necessarily just sugarcoating things or only covering positive things. But the problem is when only the negative is covered. Yeah. Right. And so my my project, both in you know writing and and just trying to be a figure within the field and cri criticizing people when they are biased is is to say, hey, you can't just cover that part. You need to take seriously the fact that, as I say, for millions and millions of people, guns are perfectly normal. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the major insights I had coming into this, because for 42 years of my life, guns were abnormal. I only thought about guns in connection with those same things, crime, deviance, and injury. And so, you know, to bring this other voice, it's a bit of a voice, you know, crying in the wilderness, but people do have to take seriously, you know, at least the, the possibility that people use guns for purposes other than hurting other people. Well, and I, we've been talking all about new gun owners and I know that you've probably maybe bred some new gun owners from your students. Uh, Cause I know that you have them write something uh, at the end of their course on, you know, how they felt and how they feel about it. So I, I'd like to spend some time talking about new gun owners from your perspective, but also it's kind of funny because I think you're also responsible for some of those people. Yeah, it's the, the sociology of guns class that I teach at Wake Forest. I'm teaching this fall. This is be the seventh consecutive year I've taught it. I teach it once a year and we begin the class before we ever meet, before we ever write or think about guns by going to the gun range and the students aren't required to shoot, but they're given the opportunity to shoot. And most of them do. So, you know, we'll shoot a 22 handgun to start the nine millimeter and then uh, an AR. And it's very interesting to see the cognitive dissonance that emerges for the students for whom guns were not part of their lives or they have biases against guns because they generally either enjoy it or come to understand why other people might enjoy it. Uh, and so that becomes a kind of experiential foundation for all of our reflections on guns throughout the rest of the class. So they do reflect on the field trip to the range and then at the end of the class, they reflect back on how they felt about guns at the start. And you know, people's views towards guns are really deeply seated. And so it's not like a single experience or a single class is going to you know, undo years of socialization. But it is the case that 
you know, for some of them, they do have a different orientation to guns after the class than at the start. And it is also true that in the last year, we've seen lots of new people getting into gun ownership, including people who are, you know, either like or from the demographic that these students come from. Uh, I just realized, Danny, that we missed a really good opportunity to somehow like hack our way into his class when he was doing it on Zoom. Just <laughs> raid his class from Wyoming. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm into the idea, there, but that would also be very rude to Dave. I mean, I mean, I was gonna ask him if we oh, could get a link. You're not talking about just like lo- I thought you were talking about just logging on one day and being like, hey. <laughs> Hey, we're here. No, I meant more like uh, hacking in because we're not students. And I'm sure that, you know, David might get in trouble if some non-paying people showed up for the class. I think one of the interesting things about, you know, there's the debates and discussions about guns are so fraught in part because people are just get so defensive about their own positions. And one of the nice things about the class is the fact that it's not public. And so people can come in and really talk to one another across their differences without worrying that it's going to end up on social media or, you know, that people are just going to be trying to score points. Uh, So I've had in the past uh, people like uh, Craig Douglas come to class or John Johnston and Rob Pincus. uh, And, you know, when people hear they're coming to class, like, oh, I really want to come to class. And I say, well, you know, actually, the class is not open. It's not recorded in any way in part so that people can really engage what people like Craig and Rob and uh, John have to say without them or the guests worrying that something that they say is going to be broadcast publicly. So it's, it's an interesting and unfortunate reality, but if we had more opportunities to have those kind of discussions, uh, that I think, you know, we would benefit collectively in trying to talk through some of our differences. Now, you mentioned that, you know, this trend that we've sort of been talking about this season of, of the podcast, and you you mentioned that this new demographic of gun owners tends to come from similar demographics to your students who, by and large, are not necessarily familiar or not from firearms, we'll say. Is... Of course, in the gun world, this has made a pretty big news item as you know, we've been talking about it. Um, NSSF and others have been sort of trying to get data on this. Is it as big of a ripple in the sociology world um, or is it not as noticed there? I think, you know, that there's some accounting being taken of it. And some of the data that I look at are, are by people who are from public health or social science disciplines. Uh, but the way it's always cast is sort of, oh my God, isn't it terrible that all of these new people are buying guns and women and racial minorities and sexual minorities are being duped into thinking that guns are going to make them safer. So you can take the same data. It's like a Rorschach <laughs> test, right? It's you take the same data and people bring all of their assumptions about uh, guns to that data. But the data says what it says, you know, that says that, uh, you know, among gun buyers last year, 20% or so were new gun owners, which is like 17 million people. Uh, of those, about half were women, right? And so that's that's massive given 
the underrepresentation of women among gun owners. Uh, half of them were racial minorities among new gun owners. So, you know, these are things that they can't be denied. This data is coming from, you know, the, the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, again, what they make of that will be different than what, you know, I think people within gun culture will make of it or what I'll make of it, but it's, it can't be denied. Well, I think that's kind of disappointing. Oh, sorry, Danny. I just, real quick comment. I just yeah. think it's disappointing that, um, that that assumption that, you know, all of these, you know, racial minorities, sexual minorities, um, women are being duped. Like that's actually kind of very arrogant to assume that we don't have any personal autonomy of our own decisions. And that, I'm kind of pissed off and insulted by that. <laughs> well, and for, for years, there's been a strain of sociologists who talk about how we can't treat people as cultural dupes, right? That the only reason that they do things is because the culture overdetermines that. And yet when it comes to guns, that doesn't apply. So what's like a similar scale of event? You know, because I mean, we're talking about several percentage points of the U.S. population at once doing something to me that feels like you know people talk about or it seems to me anyways that people talk about major events and when you get to like a percentage of the u.s population it's you know it's actually a pretty smaller like a fraction of a percent but it's still a pretty big event and here we're talking you know five six seven percent something like that of the u.s population sort of collectively doing something that's a big deal is there a similar scale of event to compare that to yeah, you know, I, th I think about and I use the language uh, in some of my writing about how I came out as a gun owner to, you know, my fellow sociologists, because you do when something is so stigmatized, you do have this kind of coming out of the closet moment, which obviously that language comes from, you know, the LGBT community and, and the notion of coming out uh, in that way. Uh, and I think it, it's similar if you think about a you know, 10% of the population, perhaps slightly higher, are uh, sexual minorities. Um, you know, a larger percentage than that are gun owners, but about six and a half percent of Americans bought a gun last year. So, you know, I think that, that those levels are, are fairly similar. And it's there's those, the parallel in terms of the, the broader, I'd say, liberal culture, uh, you know, that uh, on the one hand, you know, coming out of sexual minority is, you know, something that we should affirm that people should be who they are without judgment and, uh, and stigma. And yet that same uh, openness and empathy isn't usually granted to people who uh, become gun owners, right, that they're treated, you know, much more skeptically. So I, that might be a parallel that, that helps people to understand you know, kind of both the process as well as the scale of what's going on. Well, and I think as we uh, shift over uh, to your book, because I am real, I was like, I loved it. So if anybody cares about my opinion, then read it. But Danny and I have talked ad nauseum on gun restrictions and uh, in terms of when guns or states literally restricted people from owning guns, um, the kind of shift from banning people to banning firearms and firearms features. So we talk a lot about, you know, the restrictions that get put into place and the historical kind of framework for those restrictions and whether or not they actually do what they say they do. And so your book is kind of the opposite of that, which looks more at concealed carry laws. And it, it was fascinating to me just because it is, we always like, 
you know, hypothesize that as weirdly uh, complicated as gun restrictions are, that it has to be the same, you know, or not the same, but similar on the, you know, gun laws that people in the gun community celebrate as well. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the basis for that in the book? Yeah, I think it's interesting because as you know, as a historian, where you pick up the story can really profoundly influence how you understand the development. And so, you know, if you pick up the story in 1986, you see this massive liberalization of carry, which, you know, did take place, but you have to also understand what happened in the period before that to understand why that whole movement for liberalization even had to take place in the first place, which was because for a century before that, there was a, a profound movement towards the restriction of carrying firearms. But again, if you start in 1911 with the Sullivan Law, you get a certain picture. But if you go back even further, you know, you realize that a century before that, there were almost no restrictions on carrying firearms, that the whole movement to restrict the carrying of firearms was a development that took place at a particular moment in history. So, you know, I think we see a kind of pendulum swinging, you know, back and forth and where we're at now, I think is really moving towards liberalization, but still seeing in certain places where that restrictive era is still in place, right? Certain parts in, of California, Hawaii, New York, the usual suspects. Uh, and that's, you know, a large portion of the United States population lives in places where there are still very strong restrictions on being able to, to carry firearms. So, you know, I think reality is, is oftentimes more gray than black and white. And, and even though we're moving, you know, more towards a, a white in terms of carry laws, that there's still a lot of shades of gray. And as I say in the book, the, the devil a lot of times is in the details. And okay. oh, I'm sure you've seen it, but Dude, we're the worst today. <laughs> we're, we're rough. Um, but I'm sure you've probably seen this. It's There's a, a GIF online that's shared in gun communities a lot of sort of the map since 1986 of what are called constitutional carry states. And um, going back into the 80s, there are very few. It, it was like one or two, I, I think, um, going off memory. And of course, now I think Texas is our most is the most recent um, one to um, to become a constitutional carry state, and I think that puts it over like a quarter of the U.S. population now lives in a state that allows um, sort of permitless carry. Um, and that trend, I think, is something because in the on the gun side of things, people seem to have the idea that. Um, it's like the slow downward slide to more restrictive, but in terms of, especially in that one particular topic, it's actually been going the other way. The carry rules are becoming, as you said, more liberalized to use the original definition of the word, not the political uh, definition. <laughs> so do you see, and I think you've mentioned before we started that even since you wrote the book, Texas is, in the time you sent the, the manuscript to the publisher and when it came out, like a couple more states had added to this. Do you see all right, we've, that we've kind of hit our limit on states that are willing to do this? Or do you think more are about to follow? Um, do you see that pendulum still swinging, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I turned the, the main book manuscript in at the end of December, the beginning of January. And since then there were five other states 
that went permitless. So Iowa, Tennessee, Utah, Montana, and most recently Texas. So there were, uh, including Vermont, there are 20 of the 50 states now where anybody who can legally own a gun can legally carry that gun concealed, but again, in certain places under certain conditions. Uh, and really when I do the revision of this book, I really have to add the permitless carry era onto the end of the shall issue era. Because uh, the shall issue era is now, you know, fully established. Depending on how the Corlett case goes, that's another kind of branch of the of the shall issue era that could extend out. Um, but I think that there's not much reason for a state which is currently shall issue not to go permitless, uh, because the you know the basic frameworks are the same, right? That you are a legal gun owner and that you can you should be able to carry that gun concealed in public the the only difference between them really is any kind of class or fees that you would have to take or pay in order to get a permit uh and i think you know as i discussed some in in the book those those classes are not really training classes right those are sort of certification classes or check a box type classes and so there's no real benefit gain to the average concealed carrier to having to take that class versus not. Um, now, there are benefits to having a permitting system in place. Ashley's in uh, Arizona. And so you, it's one of the longest standing you know, constitutional carry states, but you can also get a permit where the permit allows you to carry in more places. Uh, it also allows you reciprocity in other states. So I say, you know, a third hinge in that whole system is whether we get national reciprocity, which to me seems far-fetched. Uh, but at the same time, if someone was writing about concealed carry in 1980, they would say, you know, shall issue concealed carry is far-fetched, right? And they would say permitless carry is far-fetched. So we don't, you know, the things that we can't predict happening often do happen. So the, the notion of uh, national reciprocity for concealed carry, you know, it's not something that I would bet 100% against. Uh, can you quickly, for people who may not know, because we like to think that we don't, that we have listeners that are, I almost said viewers, Camila, <laughs> that uh, listeners that probably may not know about firearms. Can you uh, just kind of quickly go through may issue and shall issue? Because I know that's, you know, a big part of the, the book. Yeah. So the, you know, the earliest permitting systems, you know, there's, there are outright bans, right? And so many states just said you cannot can carry a, a firearm concealed. But then, you know, I think people realize that they would want some people, the right people, to be able to carry a concealed firearm. So then they had to develop a permitting system, which gave the issuing authority discretion to say, who are the good people who can carry and who are the bad people? So, May issue is really founded on two principles. One is good character, right? So if the issuing authority, whether it's the sheriff or some clerk uh, thinks that you have good character, then you can carry. And if you have good cause, uh, and as you can imagine, good character and good cause to carry a concealed firearm is huge discretion, right? So you can imagine the types of people who would not be considered to fall within that realm of discretion. So, you know, shall issue is also a permitting system, but it requires the issuing authority to issue a carry permit to anybody who meets the statutory requirements. And so it drops out that good cause, drops out that good character clause and makes it much more easy for an average citizen 
uh, you know, who can pass a background check, who can pass a class. Some of the classes have shooting requirements, but they tend to be very minimal. Uh, you know, it, it really takes the discretion away from the issuing authority and makes it much easier for uh, um, anybody who meets the criteria to get a permit. So that's the dominant uh, um, system that's in place in most states with these eight or nine exceptions uh, in the Northeast and Hawaii and California. Have you ever done any research on, you know, we, we talked about early Europe and nepotism with laws. I know this is outside of your scope, but have you ever done like a little bit of research on that and maybe the connection <laughs> with what seems like something that can be very nepotistic? Is that the word? Um, mm. that, that seems like it's almost similar. Uh, somebody gets to decide, you know, who right. is the person that can carry a gun. So have you ever done any kind of cross-reference on that? I haven't, but yeah, I think that there are many parallels between systems in which, you know, the government, the, the state has the ability to say who gets to exercise a right and who doesn't. I think a, a strong parallel is in uh, voting laws, right? So uh, requiring someone to uh, take a test or pay a poll tax in order to be able to exercise their right to vote you know, is a level of uh, discretion that we generally don't accept today, right? We don't accept that people should have to pay a poll tax or pass a literacy test in order to vote. And yet we do accept, you know, that people should have to take a class, uh, pass a test in order to exercise the right to bear arms. So are those two rights on a par or not? And I think that's, it's interesting, the types of people who would want to make voting rights more open are oftentimes the same people who would want to make carry rights more restrictive uh, and vice versa. So I think for, you know, the libertarian perspective would, would suggest, you know, that, that you need to make rights as exercisable as possible. And, you know, that whole idea is a major shift away from, you know, the European model. It's, you know, I'm, I'm celebrating Independence Day extended today on, on the uh, 6th of July and, you know, breaking away from the crown and the crown's desire to exercise authority over uh, our natural rights is a big reason that the United States is what it is today. And I think this this movement in, for gun rights is, you know, part and parcel of that. So one thing that Danny's mentioned and you mentioned and I tried to interrupt about earlier uh, is the fact that you use the term in the book. And I, is it in, I, I want to know if it's intentional. Um, it's very accurate. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the political sense, you know, conservatives like guns and liberals don't, which I know for a fact isn't true by my own past. Um, but you use the term liberalism with firearms as an opening, you know, and an expansion of, you know, concealed carry rights. Well, as when you talk about, you know, restrictive concealed carry rights, you use the term conservative. And I thought it was great. Was that intentional? Um, it makes sense, like logically, but was that intentional? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, you know, trying to be accurate, but also trying to characterize it in a way that, you know, makes that point a little bit more, you know, for people. And I come again from, from a very strong blue bubble, you know, I still think of myself as a, you know, political liberal in the, you know, sense that was, uh, 
uh, criticized back in the 1980s when uh, you know Michael Dukakis was being accused of being a card-carrying liberal. Uh, and so, you know, part of that is to sort of emphasize that uh, civil libertarian side of the political liberal tradition uh, and, you know, forcing, you know, people who were our blue bubble Democrats like I was and, you know, to some extent still am to take account of the fact that uh, the movement for uh, gun rights, you know, is a movement, a civil libertarian movement. Uh, and that it is akin to some of these other movements, you know, the, the uh, voting rights movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the LGBT rights movement, right? That we're talking about uh, allowing people to exercise their constitutional or if you will, God-given natural rights to the, the greatest extent possible. And actually, there's people have uh, criticized the subtitle of the book is expanding the right to bear arms. Uh, and I've been actually criticized by, you know, people who said that it's not an expansion of the right, the right exists, right? So it's more of a, a recognition or a reestablishment or something. But, you know, I think that that rights, you know, sociologically, at least, you know, only exist to the extent that we have the ability to exercise them. One of the things that... People that be mad. About <laughs> yeah, me. you know, gun people. Gun yeah. people are, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, are, I mean, there I, are certain purity tests. Me, but I did not. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's something that I think. Um, well, we see this in the museum world and in the in the gun world of certain purity tests. Um, I think of <clears throat> this is a total sidebar, but it was a. I once watched a post on a museum jobs board go off the rails because um, they posted a negotiable hourly rate, you know, sort of based on experience. It was like, I don't know, 14 to $16 an hour, we'll say. And that became, you know, like the purity test that how dare all, you know, this is the same level of work, you know, it should all get paid the same. And that was the purity test for that specific group. But Certainly, um, gun owners are, and I'll put myself in this category, guilty of it too, of certain sort of the natural rights idea versus the practical application, like you said. Um, one of the things you've talked about, and you mentioned early, earlier that the picture changes depending on wh at what point on the timeline you pick this up. So 1911, when the Sullivan Act goes through, or 86, or whenever, and one of the changes is the, we'll call it the acceptability or the, you know, sort of PR of open carry versus concealed carry, where nowadays open carry is viewed as fairly extreme. Um, see, it, I'd say I see it pretty regularly, but not that commonly in Wyoming. Um, and I think we're kind of the exception to the rule, generally speaking. Um and concealed carry is sort of more acceptable, like keep it out of sight if you're going to do it. Whereas in the past, that was flipped. The concealed carry was sort of, all right, that person's up to no good. The person that's open carrying is the one in good standing. So you want to talk about how yeah. like that has shifted, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I live in North Carolina. So North Carolina from the time of reconstruction until the mid nineties, when it instituted shall issue, uh, had a, a, a complete ban on concealed carry, but it had never banned open carrying of firearms. 
Uh, and so, you know, it was not uncommon for me to, you know, walk out of my house uh, and the guy across the street was, you know, walk, walking to his work van, you know, with a SIG nine millimeter pistol on his hip uh, or you're in the Walmart and people are, you know, open carrying handguns in the Walmart uh, for that very idea that only people with bad intentions carried their firearms concealed. Uh, and people have a really hard time grasping the fact that you can openly carry a firearm in North Carolina and you've never not been able to do that, even though the majority of people choose not to do that. But it is, you know, definitely the case. And we see debates within the you know, gun community today over um, not, not necessarily the right to open carry, but I'd say more the wisdom or the advisability of open carrying, right? If you have the option of concealed carrying, why should you open carry? And I don't wanna enter that debate, but just recognizing that that debate exists. And, um, and yet there's a, a powerful tradition in the United States of, of not disallowing people to openly carry, even as these concealed carry laws were being passed in the 19th century. I just makes me think about all the back before I was really engaged in the full quote unquote gun culture. I, you know, all the guys that would, you know, walk into restaurants and Walmarts with their ARs strapped to their backs. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was like making their point better or worse. <laughs> and I feel like like mainstream wise, it was making their case worse. Uh, like maybe like don't brag about the fact that most states allow, you know, an open carry policy and procedure. But it was always really fascinating to me when I was getting into kind of the gun world, because I mean, back then I was like, whoa, you know, how could, you know, somebody do that? But then at the same time, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania where it was super socially acceptable to open carry, you know, a pistol, but then you start carrying rifles and like, mm, we're uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not super happy if I'm out in public and someone's walking around with an AR, um, you know, I don't freak out, but at the same time, I have asked myself a lot of questions about what, what is that person up to? And if you're, you know, trying to reach people across the aisle, so to speak, across the gun aisle, uh, openly carrying an AR to a parade or, you know, to an art fair or to a Starbucks or to a Target, you know, that, that's not winning, you know, the hearts and minds of people who are not comfortable with, you know, the role that guns play in society. And, you know, I think it's just not necessary. You know, again, that's not something that, that, you say, well, you shouldn't have the right to do that, but just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean it's wise to do that. Now, I think there's probably a, a potential follow-up research topic in the, the style of open carry. I feel like that has been lost in the political debate. And the only place I know to carry on the tradition is states that have a strong, well, places like Texas where barbecue guns are still acceptable. So people have gotten so caught up in the politics, they've forgotten to think about their style choices. And it's just disappointing to me that like nobody's out there carrying like ivory handled cult single actions as their open carry gun of choice. Yeah. So I have to say it was a very deep memory of mine, but I was I worked with my dad one summer uh, in the in the late 1980s in Phoenix. And I remember standing in line at the Burger King and realizing that the man right in front of me, who was wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, had a revolver 
openly, you know, in a whole, in a holster, open carrying. And uh, that never, it didn't make an impression on me at the time beyond the moment. Uh, but it, you know, did highlight how, you know, it, that for certain people, that's just part of their lifestyle, particularly if you are come from uh, a, maybe a more rural environment. So I don't know what this guy was doing at the Burger King in, in Phoenix, but he looked like he just came off of his ranch. Uh, or I also, you know, remember another time working with my dad, this is a Wyoming story, so I don't want to hijack the, the podcast too much, but <laughs> I, was, I was unboxing a crate of equipment that we were installing uh, and I, so I popped the lid of the crate off and there was a giant rat inside of the, of the crate. And, you know, being a suburban kid, I was like, I, I'm not going to just deal with the rat. I like went and found one of the other guys who was one of the locals working there said, um, there's a, a rat in the box, you know, I don't know what to do. And like, I go to find my dad and like 10 seconds later, I hear this pop, pop. And I realized that he just got his gun out and shot the rat and then took it out of the box and, you know, without thinking of it. And, you know, to me, I'm just like, wow, why, why did he have a gun with him? <laughs> but, you know, in, you know, 1989 in Wyoming in a rural area on top of a mountain, it was probably very advisable to have a gun. And I'm glad he did. Uh, and, well, you know, with the open carry thing and not so much because periodically I'll open carry for, you know, various reasons, such as when I was moving between Wyoming and Arizona, you know, I didn't want to drive 17 hours with, you know, a gun concealed on me because I'm so small. So it's it, like it's a very tight situation and that's uncomfortable. And so I would open carry, you know, there. And I would say people notice when I'm open carrying a lot more readily than my husband. Um, and I mean, and it's just super obvious because a lot of times if I'm open carrying, it's more because I'm carrying a gun that is not concealable on my frame. Although I'm sure lots of people will be like, you can conceal it. Here's some clothes, but I'm good with my mm -hmm. clothes. But Mark will open carry and nobody notices. Like people don't notice that he's doing that. And I've always found that really fascinating. He's like, yeah, nobody like ever, you know, look, I'm sure like some people notice they're not going to say anything, but it is very fascinating to me. Um, you know, how few people notice. And actually uh, I lie because I was open carrying a couple of years ago, going to the governor's match. Like a lot of times if I'm going to the range, you know, I'll just, you know, and, uh, head of the range, but I stopped at Starbucks and Cody at the Albertsons really quick. And I got a lecture by this guy who told me I was standing too close to him, not because I was carrying a gun. Do you remember this, Danny? Not because I was carrying a gun, but because he could be carrying a concealed firearm and that makes him uncomfortable that I was too close behind him, which I wasn't. But he lectured me about recognizing that people carry guns as I have an open carry pistol on me. And he never never saw in the conversation that I had a gun on my hip. And so I'm getting this straight up lecture about carrying guns and being, you know, aware, spatial awareness. And this man never knew I was carrying a gun, not concealed, but openly. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. I was just like, it's made all the funnier that? because, because of your, our height difference, we'll call it to be nice because you're kind of short you make a Glock 43 look like a 17, like. <laughs> well, and, and when I'm carrying open, I'm carrying a Glock 19 usually. 
or an FN, you know, five, seven, which is not something, you know, which, so like, basically I look like I've got some like, you know, uh, desert Eagle <laughs> on my hip. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like some mansplaining one-on-one there. Oh. And, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the reality of, you know, trying, you know, w- there's no doubt that one of the reasons why female gun ownership lags behind male gun ownership is because there are certain things about, uh, you know, male gun owners who are at the heart of gun culture that is sort of off-putting to to women. You know, I think it's getting better, but, you know, my wife was one of the reasons why I got into guns, uh, served in the Coast Guard, you know, carried a, a, a Beretta as part of her work. And, uh, but the way that people at, at gun shows or ranges treat her is different than the way they treated me, even when I was didn't know a damn thing about guns. Well, and that's, you know, accurate. Uh, I still get mansplained to all the time. Um, but so I guess uh, maybe wrapping it up, although I'm saying wrapping it up and Danny usually has like three more questions, but uh, wrapping it up, I do want to mention that whole mansplaining thing that definitely happens. I call it gunsplaining. Um, but, you know, we talk about, you know, Danny talked about the purity in the culture and there is, uh, you know, there is kind of the old guard and some, to some extent the new guard that is not as accepting as, um, of newer people owning firearms. If anyone is familiar with what happened on social media with Chris Chang, uh, who's been on the show a lot with the, you know, LGBTQ plus, uh, you know, flag on his chest, which by the way, it was an accident that they posted the cover. You know, they, they vote on, they asked people to vote on the cover. That was a straight up accident because the magazine is still not out. Uh, <laughs> um, so they really weren't meaning to do that, but it was shocking to me how, you know, biblical, <laughs> you know, to some extent it gotten and how, you know, vehemently opposed a lot of people who act like they want, you know, guns to, you know, have, be with everyone they don't actually mean that and so i guess my kind of final question thought for you is you mentioned all these new gun owners totally different demographics are probably coming into that world and we said you know we don't want them to be scared away by old gun owners but do you think this new group of people have the ability to influence you know democrat politicians you know eventually to you know not to go back to southern democrats but you know i would think that gun people and the expansion of gun people to different groups uh, would ultimately be good across the board because they can influence that but you know in your experience do you think that that influence is there or the potential is there or is it just kind of not going to happen and most of those people will be conservative at some point yeah no i mean i think that there the potential is there and i i don't have a looking ball unfortunately so i can't say which way it's going to go but you know one of the the challenges is that gun politics have really gotten caught up in the the partisan politics that characterizes our era, right? And so it's not anything peculiar about guns. Everything about our politics is very bifurcated and guns just happens to be one of those topics. But if as more and more people who are not politically conservative or not Republicans uh, start to be more open about their gun ownership uh, as they start to come out as gun owners. And then if they decide that their uh, gun rights are an important part of their political uh, 
beliefs, then I think pressure can start to come on uh, democratic politics to not take such a hard line uh, on the gun control side. Now, you know, that's, there's lots of things that have to happen from, to get from A to Z. And one of them is that the mere fact of owning a gun is not the same as having a gun owner identity, right? So those people who are acquiring guns last year, those 20% of new gun owners, you know, they have to come to think of themselves in some way, you know, they don't have to be hardcore, but they have to come to think of them as owning the gun as being important. Uh, as part of who they are, and then that can activate them politically. So things that can be done to bring those people in as opposed to pushing them away, you know, I say build bridges, not walls. So the more that we can do to build bridges to those people, to make them feel welcome, to make them feel included, to make them feel that their views are relevant, uh, you know, some of them will have questions about uh, gun regulations. You know, it's not, you know, obvious that someone who owns a gun is against gun regulation, right? They might want to regulate every gun except the one that they own. Uh, and so, you know, those, you know, we need to make it possible to have those kinds of conversations and to get people experientially involved in gun culture in ways that are, that is not uh, off-putting. And then they can develop a gun owner identity and then that can become politically activated. And somewhere along that time timeline, they can go to the museum. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, for me, it was always interesting because when I would go to the Smithsonian's in Washington for years and years and years, I would had no interest in guns. So I neglected to see how many guns there are displayed in the Smithsonian's. I mean, there are lots of guns. And then you realize, oh, lots of different museums. You know, you go to Colonial Williamsburg, there's a gun display. You go to the, you know, Montreal, you know, Fine Arts Museum, there's guns displayed. And you're like, okay, why, why are people not noticing it is because it's not on their radar. They don't have an interest or they only see guns in a particular way. So, uh, you know, I think moving from, from sort of general museums to the idea that, hey, there are actually, there's so much here that there can be a specialty museum that just covers firearms. You know, that's, that's part of the process. That sounds crazy. A gun, <laughs> dedicated, a, gun a gun museum, who would, who would do that? <laughs> yeah. And the answer is collectors for a really long time. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we try to we're trying well, to broaden that scope um, to make more people want to come to a gun museum that don't like guns. Yeah, well, I would think and I don't know with certainty, but I would think that your your placement in an in an area that would get lots of people visiting who aren't necessarily into guns get, presents an opportunity to, you know, if you can draw them in. Uh, you know, to, to create some of that foundational education. And, you know, for me, being exposed to guns, for example, through Top Shot was really influential in retrospect, speaking of Chris Chang, because, um, you know, I, I didn't have any interest in guns, but I was trying to pass time in a hotel and I recognized Colby Donaldson from Survivor. So I watched five or six episodes of, of Top Shot and that you know, didn't immediately, I didn't like go to the gun store right after I finished watching, but it planted a seed of, hey, guns, guns are normal. You can do interesting things with guns. Guns can be interesting and exciting and fun. Uh, so someone who, you know, is, is going to Yellowstone and, you know, happens to have some time to kill and Cody and goes to a museum, you know, and then 
who knows what seed that plants for them, even if at the time they're like, yeah, guns or whatever. So I have to ask Danny, do you have like. I was, since you put me on the spot of an expect of an expected follow-up question, I've been trying to think of one, but I'm like, I'm out of it today. We talked about a lot. This yeah, we did cover a lot of ground. Than most of our podcasts, uh, and we covered a lot of ground. So I just want to thank you, David, because this is this has been awesome. I think this is I don't tell anybody else, but this might have been one of my favorite conversations, um, you know, so far this season because it's just I mean it's just a totally different take on firearms history and i know that you're not a historian but you know it, it it's impact that and so i love it um you guys should definitely get the book concealed carry revolution expanding or uh i can't remember the word you use expanding or something establish reestablishing, recognizing the right to bear arms in america and i know that you also have a website and some different you know channels that you post on so where can people find more information uh between now and the time you publish your bigger book yeah so um basically i have uh, gunculture2.0.com or if you just google gunculture2.0 you can find that blog that's my long-standing blog uh, i've been trying to post more uh, recently to a second blog i started called gun curious uh, that's really sort of targeted more towards people who are somewhere in the middle, right? They're not gun owners, they're not uh, anti-gun, but they are curious about guns and the role that that plays. So that's guncurious.com and then all the other relevant social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So Gun Culture 2.0 and Gun Curious. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Next week on History Unloaded, we'll be joined by Nick Jensen-Jones, Director of Armament Research Services, to talk about all the ways which we're trying to influence firearms history. So be sure to check it out on all your favorite podcast platforms.